As the Bank of England's mixed messages have spooked the markets, Liz Truss's contradictory statements in Parliament have spooked just about everyone. Tonight, we'll be trying to make sense of the economic chaos. And I'll be speaking to James Meadway about the economics, to Dahlia Gabriel about the politics of it all. We're also going to talk about long COVID. It's been another incredibly dramatic 48 hours when it comes to the UK economy. That has principally been brought on by an announcement made yesterday by the Governor of the Bank of England in Washington. The statement concerned the bank's programme of buying UK government bonds to shore up their price, which had been in place since Kuateng's disastrous mini-budget two weeks ago. The markets were expecting news on when the scheme would come to an end, and this is what Andrew Bailey said. We as the Bank of England, I know not all central banks like this, have never bought index-linked gilts in our monetary operations. Um, but we realised that for financial stability purposes, we, we had to do it because that, the, the pension funds aren't natural owners of those things. And so that's what we announced uh, at the opening in London this morning. Uh, we did an auction today. We did two auctions today, one for conventionals, another one, and one for index-linked girls. Um, it, it, things seem calmer again today, we'll see. I, the last thing I'd say, Tim, is that a lot of people are saying, we've announced that we will be out by the end of this week. We think the rebalancing must be done. And my message to the funds involved and all the firms involved in managing those funds, you've got three days left now. You've got to get this done. Um, because again, part of the essence, I think, of a financial stability intervention is that it is clearly right. temporary. Now, that might not seem particularly comprehensible to you or I. So I'll attempt to explain some context. After the disastrous mini-budget, the price of government bonds fell dramatically as investors had less faith in the value of government debt. That was a problem for pension funds because they own lots of government bonds, and as the value of UK government bonds fell, their investments looked less stable. In response, and to save pension funds, the Bank of England said they would shore up the price of government bonds by buying them, but that program was only supposed to last 14 days, and yesterday, Andrew Bailey said that that 14-day period would not be extended. The response to that confirmation was pretty dramatic. The value of the pound immediately dropped from $1.112 to $1.098. And the cost of government borrowing is now as high as it was immediately after the mini-budget. On the day of the mini-budget, the interest rate on government debt was around 4%. On the weekend after the mini-budget, it rose to 5%. That fell to 4% once the Bank of England started buying bonds and has slowly risen back to 5% as the 14-day cutoff closes in. Now, that was my attempt at decoding all of what this means. Luckily for you, I'm now joined by James Meadway, who's going to have a go at it himself. So as I say, I've done my best to try and make sense of this, James. I'm very glad to have you on tonight's show. Can I get you to to explain the significance of what Andrew Bailey said yesterday and, and the market reaction to it? Your explanation got, got all of the essentials. I mean, that, that's uh, what happened here in, in, in the last sort of two weeks or so since the mini-budget. There, there was a complete panic even before Kwasi Kwarteng sat down on the Friday, what was it, the 23rd or something? It's all gone to a bit of a blur. But on that Friday, the 23rd, when he did the statement, even before he sat down, the value of the pound was dropping, basically because people trading the pound on financial markets were listening to this and heard several announcements they weren't anticipating, one big one in particular on the higher rate tax being reduced. And the implication is that the government would be borrowing very significantly more, even than it had borrowed, just said it would borrow over the summer. So that's the energy price guarantee. That's £150 billion of borrowing maybe over the next two years. There's the tax cuts, the income tax cut, the higher rate tax cut, uh, the corporation tax cut. It's all just a huge amount of borrowing. 
So this this kind of alarmed people about the, the state of the government and comes on top of uh, developing concern about the state of the British economy anyway. It's not actually in a very good place. It's a very low growth, low investment, low wages, high debts, big dependence on buying essential things from the rest of the world like gas and food. So it doesn't look very shaky anyway. And Kwasin just gave it a big shove with this budget. Everything went haywire, including exactly as you said, this problem that many pension funds had built up over the last few years some quite complicated ways of dealing with fairly low, very low interest rates on the government bonds they've been buying. They had to look for ways to sort of get around this and manage their inflows and outflows of money so they could keep paying people pensions. And these got quite complicated and quite fragile, as it turned out, when government borrowing costs shot up rapidly. They were these financial derivatives they were using were premised basically on things not changing very much. When the price changed rapidly, the sort of complex systems they built up to manage their funding uh, costs over time uh, broke down. And that's when the Bank of England intervenes. Now, the critical bit here is that they said all the way back 11, 12 days ago that they would only run this for 14 working days. So that means it expires on Friday. And that was supposed to give pension funds enough time to rearrange their asset positions to uh, sort, out, sort out some of the derivatives they were holding, patch themselves up. And the bank did this because they thought there was a real risk that pension funds would become insolvent. In other words, they wouldn't be able to pay pensions. They'd have to go back to the companies they're attached to or possibly the government to, to bail them out. What Andrew Bailey said yesterday was so striking because it was just, okay, it's in line with what the bank had already said. The thing was going to run out, but it was really doubling down on that and saying, it all ends on Friday. And of course, if the pension funds haven't had the time to sort themselves out, then all the crises that are built up would then erupt on Friday. So there's a kind of panic about that happening on Friday once he said this. Now, once he'd said that in New York, you got up this morning in London, you'd see those reports in the Financial Times saying that the bank had, in fact, told a load of pension funds that, in fact, the bond buying, the support would continue past Friday. So there's no reason to panic. So it's complete confusion from the Bank of England, which is you know, you expect this from the government, right? They, they say one thing and then the U-turn a bit later because they're just not very good at any of these things. You don't expect it from the Bank of England, which has been the, the, the kind of rock of stability in the British economy for the last 10 years or more, really since the financial crisis, through Brexit, through the pandemic. It's always been the Bank of England that whatever government does, it's there to kind of keep the show on the road. Once that starts looking shaky, we're in quite a bad place. And at this point in time, it really does look a, a little bit on the shaky side. There's a, a risk of the crisis breaking out on Friday and getting worse from this point. My working assumption is that the bank will probably just step in and carry on uh, funding this bond buying program and support pension funds and the rest of it. But of course, behind the scenes, there's a row between the Bank of England and the government about who might have to bail out these pension funds if the worst comes to the worst. The government ultimately would probably step in and make sure people had a pension, but that's yet more borrowing on top of the massive pile they got already. None of this looks good, by the way, and it's not over by, by a long stretch of the imagination. You mentioned there some of the confusing communications from the Bank of England. Let's have a look at that. So there were questions raised about the bank's competence, and that's because this morning the Financial Times released an article contradicting what Bailey said yesterday, Andrew Bailey being the governor of the Bank of England. So the FT reported that the bank had, in fact, privately reassured bankers that it was willing to prolong bond purchases. And on that information, the pound rose in value. But shortly afterwards, an official spokesperson for the Bank of England confirmed that there would be no such extension, so completely contradicting those briefings. Now, the news was announced on the official Bank of England Twitter account like this. A Bank of England spokesperson said, 
As the bank has made clear from the outset, its temporary and targeted purchases of gilts will end on the 14th of October. As the bank has made clear from the outset, its temporary and targeted purchases of gilts will end on the 14th of October. They added, I am completely operational and all my circuits are functioning. This is not giving competence. I nicked that joke from Twitter, by the way. I can't claim credit. On a serious note, James, I mean, people are saying, is this a competent organization? Do you have trust in the Bank of England to prevent a financial crisis? Or does it seem like they're a little bit all over the place? There's a a sort of fundamental problem here, um, which is to do with how a central bank operates. The, The thing that a central bank really should do, any central bank anywhere in the world basically exists to try and stop the banking system collapsing, to try and preserve financial stability. That's its fundamental role. What's happened in the last maybe two, three decades is that we've also said to central banks, you need to try and keep inflation under control. So they do that with the moving interest rates up and down and that sort of thing. In the last few weeks, the Bank of England, actually going back a bit further than that, maybe the last few months, the Bank of England has said, we want to keep inflation under control. We're going to do this by putting up interest rates and reversing quantitative easing. So instead of uh, buying bonds, they're going to sell bonds, uh, reversing that whole procedure that's been there for the last uh, 10 years, actually, more than 10 years now. So you can argue about the merits of this, but that's what the bank says it's doing. That's its inflation control part. What's happened in the last couple of weeks is it now has to try and do the financial stability part by basically completely U-turning on everything it said it would do to try and control inflation, particularly not reversing quantitative easing, but in fact, through this bond buying program, starting the whole thing up again. So these two, these two things that the bank is supposed to do are basically bumping into each other. And this is why you're getting this real confusion over what's going to take priority and what it should be doing. Andrew Bailey says one thing because he has a, a view on the inflation fighting function. And then the bank's financial stability function says, actually, we've just got to carry on supporting pensions. This is in the context of a government which is also being forced already to U-turn one part of its terrible mini budget, the 45p tax uh, reduction for the very richest. It's likely to have to U-turn on some other things as the Tory MPs are complaining really quite a lot and insisting that they need to U-turn and some of this. And it's as said, it will finally produce its forecast for what's going to happen to the economy over the, the next sort of few years on the 31st of October. So it's already under a lot of pressure. That's the government. That's on top of an economy, by the way. You have to come back to the essentials here that just doesn't work very well. People aren't well paid. There isn't a lot of demand. There's a great deal of debt. And we have to import a load of essentials from the rest of the world. So put all this together. That's the shakiness. If things get worse from this point, it will be in part because the, the kind of quality of institutions in Britain has really eroded over a long period of time. And that may now also be eating up the Bank of England, which is, of course, a fairly uh, disastrous place to, to find yourself in. If the central bank, the Bank of England, has been the only thing that has really worked very effectively in capitalist terms over the last sort of 12 years or so. Let's move from monetary policy to fiscal policy and from the Bank of England to the government. Now, on that front, Kwasi Kwarteng is set to lay out his fiscal framework for paying for his tax cuts on Halloween. And yesterday, the Institute for Fiscal Studies released analysis suggesting his reveal could be pretty scary. So they said this. Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng has promised a fully costed plan to get debt falling in the medium term, but stabilising debt as a fraction of national income in 2026 to 27 would require a fiscal tightening of around £60 billion. That's on Citibank's central forecast. The IFS also released an illustrative example of what such a package could look like. So they say one way the government could make £60 billion in cuts would be to index working age benefits to earnings instead of inflation, to cut investment spending to 2% of GDP 
and to cut the budgets of all departments outside defence and the NHS by 11%. This would, of course, cause untold misery. But given the government's professed commitment to balancing the books, today at PMQs, Liz Truss said something rather surprising. It was a response to this question from Keir Starmer. During her leadership contest, the Prime Minister said, and I quote her exactly, I'm very clear, I'm not planning public spending reductions. Is she going to stick to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. What we are... Look, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, we are spending... We are spending almost a trillion pounds of public spending. We were spending 700 billion back in 2010. What we will make sure is that over the medium term, the debt is falling. But we will do that not by cutting public spending, but by making sure we spend public money well. Very confusing. So we've been told for ages that, or the IMF demand, everyone seems to be demanding the government, if you're going to make all these cuts, going to have to cut some spending. Obviously, I'm massively relieved if the government aren't planning to cut spending, but it does leave it does leave us in a slightly confusing situation as to what's going to happen. Um, James, were you surprised by what Liz Truss said there in PMQs? How should we make sense of this all? I mean, you, you can't really make sense of it all. It's the, the range of options that the government has to get out of this without spending cuts is, is, is narrowing. It's a Naomi Klein thing. You can think of it as sort of disaster capitalism, depending on how much credit you give to, to the sort of foresight and planning here, that they've set up this budget, which was basically a disaster with a huge amount of additional borrowing in it. Because of that and the financial market panic, because of all the borrowing, they now have to tur- turn around and say, oh dear, at the end of October, we'll announce to everyone how we're going to get rid of all this borrowing that we've just taken on to pay for our tax cuts. And the most obvious route is, as the IFS says, that if they don't want to increase taxes, they're going to have to make spending cuts. Now, they could, if they want, if Liz Truss is saying, oh, we're not going to do the spending cuts, I think partly she has a fantasy that they're going to try and call this efficiency savings. This is nonsense. George Osborne did the same thing. We, we've cut the British state to the bone. There are no real efficiency savings left to be made anymore. This is just absolute fantasy. So I think that's part of her fantasy. If you're going to be a bit more serious about it, you might say, well, maybe you'll borrow money. Maybe, maybe you'll just say, okay, we'll just abandon the debt target. But that's now hugely expensive cost of government borrowing for each new pound that it borrows is what was a quadruple and probably it's going to go up a bit higher than that what it used to be just a few years ago so that's just really expensive and, and slightly disastrous if you start trying to do too much of this the other option is to do what we did during the pandemic although we pretend this didn't happen is basically to get the bank of england to print money to pay for it but of course we've seen what's happened to the bank of england over the last two weeks i mean this is like a, quite a shaky institution they can say oh in addition to everything else you're doing just like run the run the electronic printing presses to to, to cover our spending so none of this is good and if they aren't going to increase taxes uh, and they're going to try and not uh, try and reduce the, the debt that the government has because that's what the ifs thinks they will try and do they're going to have to make big cuts and if they aren't going to do that, they're going to have to just abandon the budget and start all over again. Now, of course, that's the end of at least Quasi Glatting's political career and possibly Liz Truss's at that point. But, you know, it comes down to a choice. Do you have absolutely catastrophic austerity? A repeat of, of the 2010 austerity, but in a much shorter space of time on top of the austerity we've already done? Or do we, win, do we end Quasi Glatting's uh, career? I mean, it's, it's a dilemma when you put it like that. And one of the things which does not 
give, I think, anyone reassurance in this crisis is how all the institutions of the British state are trying to pass the buck on to each other. Now, Kwasi Kwarteng is currently in the United States. That's for routine talks with the IMF and other finance ministers. It's not sort of going there saying, please rescue us. And he was asked this afternoon what he would do about any turmoil in the market when the Bank of England's bond buying scheme comes to a close. Chancellor, James Matthews from Sky News. Hi, um, tell me, what, what happens after Friday? What happens after Friday when the Bank of England stopped buying bonds? Well, it's a matter for the governor. Uh, I wouldn't comment on that. It's a matter for the government, surely, the, the who have instigated financial turmoil. The governor of the bank. Thank you. So, James, is this line from the government tenable? Whenever they're asked about sort of financial stability, pension funds, they just say, this is an issue for the governor of the Bank of England. It's nothing to do with us. Increased mortgages, that's the governor of Bank of England. Don't ask me, I'm just the chancellor. What do you make of that response we keep hearing? It's technically true in the sense that the Bank of England is supposed to be independent of the government and decisions that the government makes. That's been the case since Gordon Brown introduced this in almost the first thing he did in 1997. So that's the idea of having an independent central bank that has its own independent role in financial stability and uh, keeping inflation low. That's what's supposed to happen. What's actually happened increasingly over the last few years, but you've seen it in the last few weeks, is that the Bank of England is having to respond to decisions the government is making, which are also having an impact on financial stability. So at that point, if the government did something different, financial stability would be less of a problem. The bank could do something different. So if you as a government are doing something which has generated financial instability, and that's what the mini budget did, if you then turn around and say, ah, well, now the Bank of England can sort of deal with all of this, it's not. You've broken the independence thing. You've broken the relationship. You actually need to change what you're doing as government and not say the Bank of England can magically clear all this up because there are limits in the end to what the Bank of England can do. It is, I mean, this is the argument from, from very senior former government people like uh, Nicholas McPherson, the former permanent secretary of the Treasury. It's not up to the Bank of England to try and, for instance, bail out pension funds. It can deal with financial instability on a short-term, day-to-day basis. But if pension funds can't pay pensions, that's supposed to be a problem for government to sort out. That's something that government needs to step in and find the money to, to pay that and take on the debt or whatever it requires. So, so there's a real sort of breakdown of um, the boundaries between different institutions here. That The idea of central bank independence, which I think has always been overdone, really, by mainstream economists. But it's really starting to look very, very shaky if it's just being used as an excuse by government to hide its own poor decisions. And that's kind of what's happening. James Meadway, thank you so much for joining us this evening and for making a very complex topic seem that little bit more comprehensible. We'll get you back on soon. I like stories like this because every time we talk about it, I feel a little bit more confident talking about bonds than I did on the previous show. Um, so maybe in a, in a few episodes time, I'll be, when I'm talking about bonds, I'll have the, the authority of, of the economics um, experts that I, I get on for these stories. Straight on. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, the focus has understandably been on the acute form of the illness with an emphasis on preventing death and serious illness. But that has meant that sufferers of long COVID haven't always been taken seriously. And it turns out that there are a lot of them. According to the World Health Organization, COVID has killed 6.5 million and infected more than 600 million people globally. And of those who survived, the WHO estimates between 10 and 20% contracted long COVID. That means between 60 and 120 million people around the world. The symptoms of long COVID can be debilitating. They include fatigue, breathlessness and cognitive dysfunction. And yet we still don't understand how it works nor how to treat it. That's why the Director General of the WHO has called for governments around the world to finally 
take clear action to help sufferers of long COVID. He said this, It is critical for governments to invest long-term in their health system and workers and make a plan now for dealing with long COVID. This plan should encompass providing immediate access to antivirals to patients at high risk of serious disease, investing in research and sharing new tools and knowledge as they're identified to prevent, detect and treat patients more effectively. It also means supporting patients' physical and mental health as well as providing financial support for those who are unable to work. In the UK, the Office for National Statistics reports that 2.3 million people are living with long COVID. That's 3.5% of the population. And many of those are people who contracted COVID while working on the front lines of the pandemic. Yet despite this, the government has ignored an official recommendation to pay enhanced sickness benefits to key workers who caught long COVID. The Independent reports this. Ministers have reportedly been told that health workers who end up with long-term conditions from COVID-19 should qualify for industrial injury disablement benefits, but are yet to take action. The recommendation by the Industrial Injuries Advisory Council would see the key workers affected by the virus qualify for £188.60 in weekly benefits, which is higher than the usual rate. But despite the advice apparently being submitted in July, there has been no change in policy and the government says it is yet to consider the recommendations. But perhaps the government has reason for ignoring long COVID. The UK's latest unemployment figures have been released. Unemployment now stands at 3.5%. That's the lowest it's been since the 1970s, a fact that this government, as well as the Johnson government, has frequently boasted about. But if we take a closer look, things aren't quite as sunny as they'd have us believed. This graph shows the number of people who are, quote, economically inactive due to long-term illness. And it's the highest it's been since records began. You can see that the figure steadily drops between 2000 and 2020, but then rockets as the pandemic begins, climbing almost vertically in the last year. The important point here is that people with long-term illness are taken out of the unemployment figures, which means that the government's low unemployment figures are, at least in part, down to huge numbers of people being sick with long COVID. I'm joined now by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, why do you think long COVID is so often ignored? I mean, partly by the media, but I think especially by by the government. Yeah, I mean, I am so glad that, that we're talking about this. I think that COVID is like barely covered um, in the news anymore. And there's this very weird thing where we're all just supposed to forget that this like massive traumatic thing happened. And that actually that thing is still happening and it's still a reality for so many of us. You know, I personally know actually several people now whose lives have been completely turned upside down by long COVID. And we're talking like they're still being debilitated by this one, two, for some people, nearly three years after they first were infected. And they are mentally and physically debilitated. And in some cases, I would argue that particularly mentally, it's actually become quite life-threatening for them. And of course, all of the ones that I know that have severe cases of long COVID have had to leave the labor market, which you know is important and has had real impact on, on compounding their mental health consequences, because obviously, you know, not being able to go to work does to an extent. I mean, it depends what work you're doing, but it does kind of hamper your independence. But I also think that it's important to remember that like a lot more has been lost than a job, not just for individuals, but also for for society. You know, people's self-confidence, people's 
independence, their social life, their ability to kind of conduct daily activities without being in severe pain or being really fatigued. Like these are all things for those who I know who have suffered, who are suffering from acute cases of long COVID, that's been really heavily compromised. And there is just, it's very heartbreaking to see that there is just no infrastructure there to to support them. You know, even the the long COVID clinic that was established, it seems to me that that was just basically a clinic where people would go, outline their symptoms and be told, yeah, I'm going to tell you what I've had to tell hundreds of people today, which is that I recognize that this is real and what you're going through is real, but there's not really much we can do for you, which, you know, as far as far as the government's response goes, is, is completely ineffective. And when you ask, you know, why has this been so ignored? I think it really speaks to this kind of wider problem of how our society behaves when it comes to, to disability. And, you know, disability activists have been saying this for a really long time, which is that society essentially abandons people that it deems to be economically inactive, that it deems to be, or at least people that can't seamlessly easily without adjustment fit into to the labor market. And, you know, I think that, that that's one risk of only talking about long COVID insofar as it means talking about the labor market and labor market participation. You know, it kind of feeds into this broader idea that if you can't contribute to the labor market, your existence doesn't matter. And that if you if you aren't contributing to the labor market, then you're not contributing to anything at all. Of course, that's not true. There are people disability with disabilities, people who are elderly, who aren't active in the labor market and contribute immense things to their community, to their society, to the people that they live with. And the idea that our humanity is only recognized insofar as we are economically active is kind of something that makes all of our lives worse, not just people who aren't in the labor market. But, but to me, what we are seeing about long COVID, it's a story about a society that abandons the people that it cannot exploit. And that is something that has like been true for a really long time. And, you know, people with disabilities, particularly disability activism under austerity has been really alive to that fact. But what long COVID has done is it's kind of been this, this really concentrated and heightened example where suddenly, you know, a lot of people who might not have imagined themselves to be disabled or to have a disability have suddenly been disabled by the society that we live in and by government neglect, et cetera, and are facing kind of en masse in one go this collective realization of something that has always kind of been true under capitalism. And I think it's really important that when we talk about long COVID, and it's great that we're talking about it now. It's great that the WHO is talking about this more now and talking about infrastructure to, to build the lives back of people who have been who have suffered from long COVID. But it's really important to not only talk about this in the context of getting them back into employment. We need to be talking about this because people with long COVID, people with disabilities are human beings who deserve full lives, whether or not they are able to participate in the labor market or not. And that it is our responsibility as a society to create an enabling society rather than a society that puts more barriers up for people who don't fit in to like a very, very narrow idea of what a human body should like look like and do. I totally agree. Sort of this shines a light on how um, society can have a tendency to sort of ignore people it cannot exploit. I mean, there is also 
you know, potentially a more broad societal thing, which is a kind of awkwardness about things we struggle to explain. So at the moment, as far as I understand, you know, the scientific community, you know, there, there is some investment going into this, not nearly enough, which is why the WHO has intervened, but doesn't seem to have a particular answer as to why long COVID is happening. And I think that is one of the, you know, the, the mechanism. I mean, sort of the, obviously it's the connection between COVID and being incredibly ill afterwards. But the, the mechanism that causes it, I think, still remains myst- mysterious to some degree. I think the idea is that there could be lots of different mechanisms sort of causing similar outcomes. And because of that, there is this sort of suspicion, oh, maybe it's all in people's heads. You know, maybe this is people imagining that they've got long COVID. And I, I suppose two things to say there is, one, even if we can't explain something, that doesn't make it not real. So we should take it incredibly seriously. And two, that is precisely why we should be putting loads and loads of investment into discovering the causes of long COVID, because one, that means that you can find a cure. And I think also it's it's kind of a bit of a relief to people, I think, when you can say, oh, this is why I feel like this. I can now describe this in terms that, you know, I don't have to just reach for in the abstract. This is what I'm suffering from. You often hear it sort of when people talk about when they get a diagnosis for autism or ADHD. So it's like, this was always a, mis- a mystery to me. Why did I feel like this? Now I've got this diagnosis. It kind of makes sense. I think that's why I sort of, yeah, we should be investing billions of research, billions of pounds into research in this. If if we're giving the rich 45 billion's worth of tax cuts, we can invest a billion pounds into research into long COVID, which, as you're saying, is is not just taking people out of the labour market, it is ruining a lot of people's lives at the moment. Um, A really important comment in the chat. Um, Nat H says, I've had long COVID since my first infection in February 2020, and I've had no health, social care, or financial help. I mean, I'm so sorry to hear that. Incredibly Tragic. And I suppose in a way, you know, sadly not surprising because we know that our health system is at the brink of collapse. We know that our social care system is at the brink of collapse. And in terms of financial support, we know that the state, its approach to people who are suffering from chronic illness or disability is not to say, okay, let's wrap our arms around you. There was a pandemic. The brutal logic of illnesses is that it's, it's some people get lucky and some people get very unlucky. If you're one of the unlucky ones, we as a society should wrap your arms around you and make this as comfortable as it can possibly be. Instead, the state looks at you and says, are you sure? You're sure you're not making this up? And makes people jump through hoops. Obviously, we've been seeing this intensely since 2010. Anyone who suffers from chronic illness, it's not the state saying, how can we support you? How can we make your life as sort of comfortable and fulfilling as it can be? It's, are you sure you're disabled? Are you sure you're sick? Which just, I think, compounds the sort of injustice of it all. I do want to say one more thing, which is a couple of people have been in touch with me on Twitter. I'm to say there's a protest happening on Tuesday, the 18th of October from 1 to 3 p.m. in Parliament Square. That's to demand funds for research into ME and chronic fatigue syndrome and associated illnesses, which of course includes long COVID. So it's organized by a charity named ME Action. Their website is meaction.net. And I suppose finally to say, I think these discussions about long COVID what we should also take into account is that there are chronic illnesses which have for decades been ignored and people have been gaslit and told this isn't really a thing, you're imagining it, things such as ME and chronic fatigue. So if we can now sort of develop a more holistic outlook towards all of these conditions and take them more seriously, I think that would be a very positive thing. Let's go on to our next story. The business secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has appeared across the nation's broadcasters and he has told one whopper after another. Let's start with him discussing a report from the International Monetary Fund. Here's Rees-Mogg talking to Michelle Hussain on Radio 4's Today programme. 
Interestingly, the IMF, which is not usually particularly well disposed to this government, uh, has indicated that we will get more growth next year. And that is obviously in part a consequence uh, of the fiscal event that we had um, in uh, earlier in September. Have you read all of what the IMF said yesterday? Not every word of what the IMF right, well, has let, said. Well, then let, let but, me but, tell you. Let me tell you that it that it slashed its gross its growth pro- projection for the UK's GDP to 0.3 percent in 2023. That is down from what it thought in April. It's also saying that it that the UK is on course to suffer the highest average inflation rates of any major economy in 2022 and 2023. It's expecting inflation to remain high next year, nine percent. And it's also expecting unemployment to rise from well, its current low to as much as 4.8% uh, uh, in 2023. Uh, as I said, the IMF is not normally a friend of this government, and I have a feeling well, that it will be... you picked out one bit, yeah, have, and you then don't seem to like said, the rest of I it. I said it's not normally so a friend. So either you like their assessments, or you don't like their assessments. I, I, I said it's not normally a friend, save the fact that it has one figure that is sympathetic to the government in the terms of the IMF is a triumph. So the IMF's predictions are generally unfriendly and false, and that proves that when one of them is in the government's favour... It's true. But even the cherry-picked fact is on shaky ground. Rees-Mogg said that the IMF predicted, quote, that we will get more growth next year. And he is right on one level. The IMF have said that thanks to the package introduced by the government, principally the energy freeze, growth will be marginally higher than it otherwise would be. But the overall figures for growth are still very, very poor. So at a projected 0.3%, UK growth is predicted to be well below that of most of the G7. And combined with the prediction of higher inflation and unemployment, it's going to feel like a recession to most of us. Over on Sky, Kay Burley asked Rees-Mogg about pensions and specifically about the Governor of the Bank of England's statement that after Friday, he won't be able to protect them any longer by injecting cash into the gilts market. Andrew Bailey thought it was... um, in concerning enough to offer emergency help that will be withdrawn. He says, on Friday, I'm saying to you, how concerned should we be that the governor of the Bank of England in his very important job has said, come Friday, they're on the road? Well, the Bank of England is obviously operationally independent, and that's quite right. And the governor will make decisions in accordance with the markets. But the Bank of England does have a responsibility and has had a responsibility for a very long time uh, to ensure the orderly functioning of markets. And therefore, it intervenes from time to time when there are unexpected events. So what unexpected event is Rees-Mogg talking about? Was it a natural disaster that shook the pound? Was it an unforeseen international economic crisis that freaked the markets out? No, it was his government's mini-budget, which wasn't unexpected because they wrote it. And if the effects were unexpected, that's only because they refused to let the OBR make an independent economic forecast. Clearly, what's happening here is that Rees-Mogg is saying the Bank of England, and not the government, is responsible for any pensions crisis that might happen after Friday. But it was a difficult line to maintain. And back on Radio 4, Michelle Hussain tried to pick him up on it. I'm trying to get to get your view on what many people regard as a very serious economic and investor confidence picture that has been sparked by the mini budget. And something uh, you could uh, do, something you could do would be to bring forward the economic uh, and fiscal plan that's scheduled for October uh, the 31st. Is that possible? No, well, hold on. You suggest something is causal, which is a speculation. What 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 has caused um the effect in uh, pension funds because of 
some quite um, high risk but low probability investment strategies is not necessarily the mini budget. It could just as easily be the fact that the day before the Bank of England did not raise interest rates as much uh, as the Federal Reserve did. And I think jumping to conclusions about causality uh, is not meeting the BBC's requirement for impartiality. It is a commentary uh, rather than uh, a factual question. The mini-budget didn't cause the crisis, and to suggest it did is passing commentary off as fact. So why did the market settle a bit when the cut to the 45p rate of tax was abandoned, and again when Kwasi Kwarteng brought forward the budget to the 31st of October? And why, in the wake of the fallout of the mini-budget, did the Prime Minister say this? Of course, you know, we are working closely with the Bank of England. It's very important the monetary and fiscal policy is coordinated. And I recognise there has been disruption. It was really, really important that we were able to get help to families as soon as possible. She recognises there was disruption. And it sounds like she recognises that it was the mini-budget that caused it. She isn't trying to deny reality to the same extent that Jacob Rees-Mogg is attempting. Dahlia, I get the impression that the reason Jacob Rees-Mogg is I suppose, more adventurous when it comes to the truth than anyone else on the front bench, is he seems to think his plummy accent means he can get away with much more than his colleagues. Is he correct? Can he say literally anything because he sounds as ridiculously posh as he does? If there's anything I'd agree with him on, it's probably that. I think I don't think he's had anything much to offer British political life other than speaking to like this weird nostalgia that some people have for like, Victorian workhouse guardians, which is what he kind of embodies. You know, and of course, if, if Diane Abbott, if Zara Sultana, if, if anyone else came in and, and tanked the economy within five minutes of being in power, I don't think they would be given the grace to even explain themselves in the way that, that someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg has been given the grace. You know, I'm, Diane Abbott has gotten way more flack for misquoting a few numbers than he's gotten to literally lying to the public about their pensions. I also love to know why, you know, he keeps saying this thing about, you know, the IMF like being unfriendly towards this British government. And he sort of says it as if it's like a given that we should all know why that is. Why I would love to know his explanation for why the IMF, which is a deeply neoliberal, deeply conservative institution that is responsible for forcing destructive structural adjustment programs around the world in the name of growth, why they would have a problem with this government simply because they are a neoliberal government who wants to promote growth. I would love to know why he thinks that that is. But, you know, Rhys Mogg comes from this school of political thought that is incredibly dangerous and delusional, but is now pretty much the kind of default ideology in the Conservative Party, which is this sort of Anne Randian style of, of politics, where people who whose entire wealth and power is exploited from other people's work, other people's labor, and then they turn around and essentially tell the rest of us that, you know, we're all too weak and lazy and, and unintelligent. And that's why we don't have as much wealth and power as they do. Rhys Mogg's father, who he kind of credits as one of his biggest political inspirations, uh, literally argued that welfare states not sustainable, they're unfinanceable, and that only the most 
talented, uh, reliant, self-reliant and technologically adept person will survive in, in the uh, economically. And it makes me wonder why someone like Rhys Mogg can kind of look at the complete state of our economy and think, well, actually, this is working the way I think an economy should work, where the already rich, the already powerful just simply gain more and more ground in the economy. That fits within his theory of sort of economic natural uh, selection, that the rich and powerful are rich and powerful because they're smarter, they're you know inherently, biologically, physically, mentally uh, stronger than the rest of us. This is something that used to be called eugenics, but now it's kind of called like entrepreneurialism or whatever. The best thing that we can do as a society is give those people more power and more wealth because they're the only ones who know how to use it well or effectively. And where he's been thrown for a loop and where it's kind of, I think he's a bit confused, is why institutions that are basically there exclusively to protect the rich and the powerful, such as the IMF, are kind of looking at him like, what are you doing? Like, we might agree with the basic principle here, but you're doing way too much, way too fast. And it's actually not sustainable for us in the long term for our interests. And I think that he's probably a little bit confused by that. But what you have when you have that kind of very elite rearing is that you have this ability to just have complete conviction in what you have done and what you've said even if the entire world around you is falling apart and is kind of telling you the exact opposite. And that ability, and I think we all, particularly journalists, kind of hear, you know, the accent and they hear the package it comes in, they see the package it comes in, and they just give him grace that would not be afforded to anyone else. You know, even under the slightest bit of pressure, he had to resort to the absurd talking point that the BBC was somehow ideologically slanted against the Conservative Party, which, I mean, where have you been for the past 10 years? So yeah, I think it's it's a mixture of his rearing, his upbringing, his, the way he, he kind of the package that he comes in, but also the kind of the broader institutional context that reaffirms that, you know, and that's what we've, we've been seeing in the press over the past several weeks and throughout the entirety of Jacob Rees-Mogg's career. It's partly the Brexit thing, isn't it? So it's allowed these people who, you know, their whole life has been committed to making the rich richer and the poor poorer, defending, um, you know, the real centres of the establishment, Eton, um, bankers in the city. But because they were pro-Brexit, they can pretend that they are sort of revolutionary anti-establishment figures. I mean, the IMF was against Brexit. So Jacob Rees-Mogg can say, look, this is just them being biased because they were against um, Brexit. They want a kind of economic integration that we're fighting against. We want to go alone in a sort of buccaneering way. So, I mean, for me, it's kind of, you know, you can talk about it as sort of a division within the ruling class, or you can just say that these are some people who went to posh schools and they're just playing games. And it's a different game to the one uh, that the IMF is playing. The IMF's one is a bit more serious, even though probably on a global level, it has caused um, more harm than Jacob Rees-Mogg ever has. Final story. Liz Truss has had the most disastrous start to her premiership of any prime minister in modern history. And with the markets, the public and the Tory benches in open revolt, something big will need to change. And more and more people are beginning to suspect that could mean the resignation of this man, Kwasi Kwarteng. Yes, that's right. Apparently, speculation of the Chancellor's demise is rife among Tory MPs. And a story in The Independent has made me think a resignation could be imminent. 
The paper reported that pressure from Tory MPs to save their reputation for fiscal prudence combined with market turmoil has caused Number 10 to rethink the mini-budget. A source inside Number 10 said this, Staff have been told to go through Kuateng's mini-budget measures and the Office for Budget Responsibilities working line by line. The turmoil in markets and the need to show fiscal prudence are being heeded. Everything is being looked at again, including tax cuts. The picture will change a lot if energy measures are means-tested carefully next winter and wholesale prices calm down a little. But that's not enough on its own to balance the books, as has been suggested by getting debt down as a share of GDP. The article goes on to say that the government is now considering a staggered rise in corporation tax rather than leaving it at 19%. They're also apparently thinking about delaying the 1p cut in the basic rate of income tax until 2024. So why does this make me think Kuateng is a goner? Well, he's already been forced into one U-turn on his mini-budget. That was on the 45p tax rate. And if he has to make any more, I can't see how he could be left with any shred of credibility intact. So your big measure slashing the 45p rate, that was the big, this is this is my big surprise measure to cheers in the House of Commons. He had to scrap that. If he has to scrap basically anything else in the budget, I mean, to my mind, his, his reputation, any credibility he has is in tatters. And also key here, the fact um, that discussions about economic U-turns are happening in number 10 instead of in the Treasury, that suggests trust might not have complete trust in her chancellor, or I suppose another way of putting it, she might be considering throwing her chancellor under a bus to try and save her struggling career. Dahlia, do you think Kwasi Kwarteng's days in number 11 could now be numbered? I'm frankly shocked he's still here. I'm honestly surprised that he wasn't sacked like the minute the pound hit that record low. Um, against the dollar, like normally when a when a government gets it this wrong to the point where, as you said, you know, major institutions that should be their allies in these kinds of programs are like looking at them sideways, like what are you doing? Normally, when that happens, they kind of the prime minister shafts like the nearest minister um to keep their own power uh, intact. And I, I wonder if it speaks to you know the fact that it's taken this long. If it speaks to like the debt of Liz Truss's delusion. Boris Johnson was very similar to Liz Truss in that they have they both have this kind of move fast and break things kind of fake anti-establishment approach, which is, you know, also this kind of narcissism that leads them to sort of model their behavior on like their political heroes, on historical figures, you know, like Churchill for Johnson and Liz Truss for Margaret Thatcher. And they kind of use being prime minister as a chance to kind of cosplay their political heroes. So they both kind of share that similarity. But Johnson very much knew what he needed to do in order to ensure his political uh, survival. He could sense when it was time to shove someone under a bus to save himself. And it doesn't matter how close you were to his project at any one time you know he was ruthless in that in that sense you know obviously that and the fact that the british media was unable to hold him even the tiniest bit accountable for the majority of his political career uh so trust really doesn't seem to have that kind of judgment or maybe it's because trust sees herself as you know in genuine ideological community with quasi quarteng you know this whole britannia unchained thing Kwarteng's head is absolutely on the on the chopping block. It will be part of a broader 
public messaging uh, rollback. We already saw that with trust in the commons, basically committing to there being no public spending cuts. Uh, when just a week ago, we were hearing that that Kwarteng had to find £60 billion in public spending cuts. That's a massive U-turn. That's, you know, absolutely like a complete 180 in direction. I obviously, I don't believe for a second that there won't be public spending cuts, even if it just looks like not rising, raising public spending in line with inflation, which basically is the same as having public spending cuts. But, you know, if I was quasi Kwarteng and I was looking at this pivot, this shift in public messaging um, that I'm clearly not being included in and not being clued in on, I'd probably not have too much faith in the idea of my job being being mine for much longer. I'd probably be checking in on those uh those side jobs, those uh, you know, other streams of income, whatever they, whatever hideous things they are they come from. And I'd be probably having a look to make sure that they're still ticking on nicely. Because even though Truss's performance in the Commons was absolutely incoherent, didn't make much economic sense. It did signal an attempt to kind of say, okay, we're binning some of the most unpopular parts, at least in public, of our agenda. And it was, as you said, very clear that number 11 were not part of that public shift. And that way she's able to pin it all completely on quasi Quartet. Polling does show the Tories are screwed unless something very significant changes. So polling from YouGov suggests the full 78% of the public think that the government is handling the economy badly. And I'll try and find someone from the 18% to get on the show soon because that should be an entertaining conversation. Let's wrap up there. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me. I can't believe, who are they going to run? They've scraped the barrel. This is the bottom of the Tory barrel. So I don't know who they're going to put instead of her. Maybe Jeremy Hunt will finally, finally step in at this moment. <laughs> it might be soothsayer Rishi Sunak. He predicted all of this, you know. He might have had a surely economic policy in his own right. But to be fair to him, lots of uh, Liz Truss's plans he did say would cause what it caused. Obviously, I won't be welcoming him as prime minister, but he does have the case that it should be his turn. Let's wrap up there. Thank you for your comments and questions. We'll be back on Friday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Kiski Sour on Novara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.